Hi, welcome back to CME for Life podcast, where we are always aiming to maximize your mind. My name is Jen Carlquist, and I am a cardiology physician assistant. I also work part-time in the emergency room. And today's case is exactly the reason why we spend so much time doing those darn medication reconciliation forms that we hate, that take us forever when we try to discharge a patient. You know the ones where we have to click through, if you do EMR, all the medications and decide which ones to keep them on and which ones to take them off. And it's frustrating and it's time consuming. And I used to, before I learned about this case, I used to think that was time better spent. If I could take the time clicking and spending it with the patient, that was a way better use of my time. But this case is an exact illustration of why this is so important. This is a 51-year-old female who felt like the water ran out of her. She described that she was under stress that day, and she did have a long history of chronic neck pain stemming from an old injury where she had a bunch of boxes fall on her neck, and so she was on chronic methadone therapy. But that day was a particularly bad day, and instead of just one methadone, she took two. She also had a history of hypertension and some psychiatric disorders. And on that particular day, she admitted to doing cocaine and drinking alcohol. So when she started to feel poorly, she called 911. On EMS arrival, they documented that they noticed that she had an episode of urinary incontinence. I will tell you that if you ever have a patient who has urinary incontinence, you should be very worried about two things, either a syncopal episode or a seizure and or both. That's a hard thing to fake. Now, granted, I have had some patients in the emergency room who have faked having seizures, and I've had a couple who have actually faked the urinary incontinence part to try to get lorazepam. However, those cases are rare, and if somebody does have urinary incontinence, it's a very worrisome sign. So perhaps when she said she felt like the water ran out of her, it was because it literally did, or she just felt weak. She also described feeling dizzy and dysmic and had some chest discomfort, so the EMS team hooked her up, and the field EKG revealed a sinus tachycardia with borderline ST elevation in V1 and V2 with one PVC. They were loading her onto the gurney, and at that point, she went into torsades de poing, which is a form of VTAC. She was pulseless. She was shocked once at 200 joules, and brief CPR was performed. Luckily for her, she actually survived, and her door time EKG was read as normal sinus rhythm. She had a heart rate of 66 beats per minute. There was no STEMI. Her door time EKG at the ER showed a normal sinus rhythm with a heart rate of 66 beats per minute and what the machine software interpretation called nonspecific T-wave abnormality. If you ever see that or something that says nonspecific ST T-wave changes, That's sort of a garbage can diagnosis for the machine saying there's something wrong in the T or ST segment, but I don't know what it is. It doesn't meet any of my programmed criteria, which is why we'll always have job security. But if it ever says that, what you want to look at is you want to look at the height of the T wave. And for this particular case, she actually had a flattened T wave. 
And she also had prolonged QT. But sticking with the flattened T wave for a minute, if you think about that, what can cause a flat T wave? If you think about what can cause a pointy T wave, hyperkalemia, wouldn't it make sense that hypokalemia would cause a flat T wave, which she had, which hypokalemia is actually a risk factor for torsades de point, especially when you have multiple QT prolonging medications and you're female. So she had a lot of different risks for this to actually happen to her, considering her medication list. The other thing that she had, the biggest thing, is that she had a prolonged QT. And that's the other reason that the machine software was flagging the ST segment, because she had a prolonged QT, which it actually said prolonged QT in the analysis, and it was right. But I will tell you that it doesn't always call it. Usually most machines, and I'm using this as a usually general broad assumption, most of them will start calling it around 500 milliseconds. Now, if you remember from last week's podcast, we talked about how long is too long. So for any, for just general rules, if you just remember anything over 460 milliseconds, 460 milliseconds is too long, you're pretty good to go. But if you have a man, anything over 450 is long, and a woman, anything over 460 is too long. And the way I remember the difference is that women need an extra 10 milliseconds to get ready for a date. We need that extra time to do our hair. But generally, I I tend to use 460. It's easier for me. Now, can you rely on the machine analysis of the QT interval? The answer is, in general, yes. Unless there's a lot of artifact, you can generally rely on that number. Now, there's two numbers in the EKG portion for the QT. There's a f- one. There's the first number and the second number divided by a hash. It's the second number, the QTC, which stands for corrected QT interval that we rely on. So hers was 528, which is too long. And as it turns out, that was the reason for her cardiac arrest. Now her medications included Prozac, methadone, trazodone, pepsid, risperidol, Xanax, and Neurontin. Only two of those are non-QT prolonging, the Xanax and Neurontin, but Prozac, Methadone, especially when you take two, Trazodone, Pepsid, and Respiridol are all QT prolongers. And the way to know this is to go to a free website and you can look it up. And it's called qtdrugs.org, which will actually steer you to crediblemeds.org. And it's a great website for healthcare providers because there's a section if you log in, it'll actually tell you how much a medication will actually prolong the QT. Now, that in itself is not as important to know. What you really want to know is how worried to be about the particular drug. So, for example, amiodarone, which is an antiarrhythmic, as well as sotalol, which is an antiarrhythmic, they both prolong the QT. In fact, amiodarone prolongs it about 80 milliseconds and sotalol about 40. But there's more adverse events with sotalol, even though it doesn't prolong the QT as much. So with that being said, you even though it's going to list how long the QT will get, you really want to know how risky the medication is, and it actually will stratify it for you on that website. So how does this apply to you in your setting? What you need to know is that even though QT prolongation is a rare cause of cardiac arrest, it is still something that we can possibly cause. 
Incidentally, this patient was seen a year prior in the emergency room and she had low potassium at that visit. There was a reason for it. She was vomiting, she had diarrhea, and she remembers being told to, quote, work on her potassium, end quote, which I think is always funny to hear what the patients take away from their their discharge instructions. She remembers being given what she describes as horse pills, most likely potassium, and she didn't want to take them, and who can blame her? She didn't understand the gravity of the possible consequences. She now has an ICD in her chest because she's status post-cardiac arrest, and her medications haven't changed to non-QT prolonging medications. And just so you know, there's a few that are pretty common that you're going to run into that you should know about. They've been in the news and in the media, especially since 2013. They are Zithromax and Zofran, the two Zs that I could not live without in the emergency room. If you are prescribing a QT prolonging agent or something common, you want to make sure they don't have a congenital history of prolonged QT, that they're not hypokalemic or hypomagnesic, and you want to look at their medications.